Listen now to God's word. He, that is Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through the way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give it back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because he too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come uh, to your word this morning, as we continue to to reflect on um, this amazing story of the repentance of a tax collector who found himself up in a tree, we pray that uh, by your spirit, through your word, you would be speaking to us today. We pray that these words would encourage us, shape us, mold us. We recognize that we desperately need your help and that we can do nothing without you. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Today is Palm Sunday. Uh, That means it's the start of Easter week. It's the Sunday where we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Um, You know, in in many ways, Palm Sunday, the start of Easter week, it's it's the culmination of of Jesus' ministry uh, as, as he's laboring on earth. I mean, we remember that crowds line the street and they're yelling, Hosanna, 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 as he's coming through. They're expecting him to deliver them from Roman rule. I mean, it's not just a few people, a few bystanders here or there, but they're packed in. Jesus, of course, is riding on a donkey, not a charging war horse, and he enters Jerusalem with a view to his death on Good Friday and resurrection on Easter Sunday. Though, though the people in Jesus have different expectations for the way that this week is going to go, it is a culminating effort in, in both of their minds. But of course, that's not the only uh, effort going on. And, and we see the connection between what the people's expectations are and, and what's going to happen in, in Jesus' mind when we remember that there are others for whom this is the culmination of their efforts and it is the plot to kill Jesus. Luke describes this, actually, he, it's starting back in, in chapter 6. After Jesus is, is performing miracles and he's, he's delivering people uh, 
from the, the power of sin or the, you know, some of the penalty of sin. And they, he was doing it on the Sabbath, and, and so the Pharisees sought to kill him. And we see all of these things are coming together on Palm Sunday. It's an interesting week ahead of us. I encourage you this week, actually, to, to read through all four gospel accounts as it, as it describes the events of Palm Sunday, from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, and put them together. See how they fit together. See what's going on. And what we see is that the rather confused hopes of the people are exceeded by the foolishness of God, which in turn dwarfs all of the wisdom of man. Today, as we're here on Palm Sunday, uh, we're actually looking at the text that starts right before. You almost could call it uh, Palm Saturday. I don't say that because it's the Sabbath day. Rather, I just say that because immediately after this story, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. So this is, this is uh, shaping what he's thinking about and what he's doing as he rides into town, as it were. And it's a, it's a sort of strange story. It's a, it's a conversation between Jesus and this man that's in the tree. And if we remember the song about the wee little man, we know that Zacchaeus is short, and he runs up and he climbs into a sycamore. But we have to, to, to wonder what prompts his behavior. And from the dialogue between Zacchaeus and, and Jesus and the people, we have to conclude that, that Zacchaeus has to be racked with guilt or, or in some way convicted of his life. And he's going to Jesus just to see Jesus to find forgiveness, if that's even possible. Now today, I, I recognize that we don't have tax collectors in the sense of Zacchaeus, though I think we probably do have people who are here that feel weighed down by sin, who are, who are bearing uh, some, some of the, the, the weight of it. Maybe that's because you, you've never heard that, that Jesus is the Lord and, and that he can remove it, or perhaps it's because you're... you're um, stuck in a habit or, or in, in some way have fallen into sin. Maybe you've forgotten your first love and are following the things of the world. I, I don't know what the case might be, but it's, it's as though the, the psalm we just read, where the psalmist asks, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why, why are you in despair? For whatever reason, I have no doubt that, that because we are uh, people, we're finite, we are sinful, that, that there are those among us here today that feel the pressure of the weight of sin. So what do we do? How, how do we read the, this story between Jesus and Zacchaeus this morning? Well, the, the answer is the way that we, we, we read it, the way we understand it, is we're to see how Zacchaeus rightly looks to Jesus. He, he puts aside societal norms. He puts aside his dignity. He puts aside everything, as we'll see, to see Jesus, to find Jesus, to be delivered by Jesus. So this morning, as we consider Zacchaeus, as we consider the Lord Jesus, as he saves Zacchaeus, 
May we, like the wee man in the tree, look to the Lord Jesus, where we find our Savior, and may we follow him wherever he leads. If you, if you look with me at verse 2, you see that Zacchaeus is described as a tax collector. And not just any tax collector, he's a tax, the, the chief tax collector, and he's very rich. And as we, we think about a tax collector, I know that we could all sit around and say the only constants in life are death and taxes and, and how much we don't like taxes and how we don't like tax men if we can help it. But, but the reality is if we were to sit around and, and make jokes like that all day, it wouldn't come close to the animosity that the people feel for Zacchaeus. In Israelite society, the tax collector was just about the lowest of the low. I mean, you can tell from his name that he's a Hebrew. He's Jewish. Yet he worked for the Romans. He worked not for his people and against the enemy, but rather he worked for the enemy of his people and against his brothers and sisters. Basically, if if you, if you, if you um, think about the way that this works, basically what happens is that Rome decides it needs a certain amount of money from a geographical region. And it says, who's going to give us this money? And you know, people might bid for it. I don't, you know, but, but tax collectors would say, well, I'll give you a you know, million dollars. And then for the million dollars that they give to Rome, they get, a, they get a badge that says Roman tax collector, meaning you can't ignore them. And then they go to the populace, which for Zacchaeus means the, the, his, his countrymen, right? The, the Jewish folks that live around him. And he gets to raise money from them. And because it says Roman tax collector, you can't ignore him. You can't say, no, I don't want to give you money. Because it, it, he bears the authority of Rome. And anything that he earns more than the million dollars he was supposed to raise, he gets to keep. So you can imagine how much money he raised, right? He made his living by taking advantage of his friends, his neighbors, his relatives. I think it's pretty fair to say he was despised. I think it's pretty fair to say he was hated. And it's hard for us to, to even put this into a, 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 a terms that we would understand uh, in our modern culture. I'm tempted to think of, of like a crooked property assessor, right? You know, a, a, a school board says we need um, an extra $100,000 from this housing development. And the assessor goes and he, he artificially raises the value of, of all the homes so that when tax time comes, it goes to the schools, something like that. Um, the, the problem with that is it doesn't quite have the punch of, of Zacchaeus. It doesn't have the punch of the publican. And I think part of that is because you know, we have to remember that, that the Jewish people living in Israel lived under Roman control. They lived under Roman rule. So there was a constant reminder that they were not, in fact, in control. I think a better example, given our, our nation's difficulties with, with opioids would be to consider a pharmacist, right? He's taken an oath to care for his patients, to, to give them what will help them and to not harm them. And, and you know, I, I envision um, uh, the pharmacist filling prescriptions for, for Tylenol with codeine. And I, I picked that specifically um, because for kids, that's a pretty strong painkiller. 
And I say this uh, when I was 12. I, I was playing at recess at school, fell, broke my arm. And I remember how fat my fingers were, how, how I could feel the throb in what then looked like sausages when the Tylenol with codeine wore off. Right? It, it, I, I took it at 8, went into school, 2 o'clock. Oh, I couldn't wait to get on the bus to go home. Right? Because I, I was in pain and, and needed it. But, but let's think about the pharmacist who's dealing with, with that kind of prescription. But rather than, than do what he's supposed to, he, he slips in another pill. It's, it's not Tylenol with codeine, but it's full-strength oxycodone. It, it's a full-strength narcotic. And you might say, well, simple mistake. No. He has a, a, a hope. His hope is that his patients become dependent. And then they need to come to him for help. Hey, I, I need, you gave me the good painkillers. I need more of that. And of course, he'll sell them to him at an elevated price. Something like that. Something that would get under our skin and in the way that it would affect uh, lives. That, that's sort of closer to the mark with what's going on with Zacchaeus. He is a pariah. Everybody hates him. It's important to remember that as we come to this text, as we come to think about this exchange between the Lord Jesus and Zacchaeus, because Zacchaeus is the lowest of the low. So if you're here and you're thinking, if he's going to talk about Jesus and he's going to talk about salvation from sin, he has to know that Jesus would never save me from my sin. The people around me would hate me if they knew my sin. I, I, I can't even talk about my sin because it's so awful. Well, just as salvation comes to Zacchaeus, so salvation can come to you. And it does so in the Lord Jesus who delivers us from the power of sin. Now, as we look, as we continue through the story of Zacchaeus, we see in verses 3 and 4 exactly how Zacchaeus was looking for Jesus. The text tells us that he's short. He couldn't see. And so what did he do? Uh, just, just reading here, it says that he's trying to see. He's small in stature, so he ran on ahead, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree. Uh, just thinking about this logistically, uh, men in Israelite culture don't run. Um, it's rather difficult because, of course, you're wearing tunics and robes, right, that, that go down uh, perhaps to the ground. How do you take steps? How do you run? How do you move quickly? Uh, this isn't a straightforward thing. If I preach in robes, I can't even hardly get up these steps slowly, very deliberately, without falling on my face. Zacchaeus here is doing something that is uh, remarkably undignified. But it gets worse. He then climbs up into the tree. And we need to remember that this isn't a young, young boy, right, who's having fun swinging from the tree branches, but this is a grown man. And in his culture, this is nearly unthinkable. Now, you know, all, all societies have different taboos and different expectations. Um, you know, a silly one in ours is you know, we, we typically don't, particularly if we're men, wear hats inside. I'll be honest, I don't wear a hat at all for two reasons, something about the brim gives me a headache, but also because when, when I was a young man and I walked inside, my mom would say, take that hat off. 
And when you're 10, the last thing that you want to do is to hold a hat and walk around the building. And if I handed it to her, she'd say, no, it's your hat. <laughs> I didn't want to wear it. You, you, you carry it. So what does this mean? My mom's been dead for 15 years, and I still can't wear a hat inside the building, right? Uh, I mean, it's, that's just, and it's silly, right? That, that doesn't mean anything. But, but Zacchaeus, it's, it's a bit more, and, and I don't want to be crass, um, as we, as we try to get closer to this, but perhaps a, a different taboo would, would be this. All throughout history, and indeed even now in the developing world, um, handedness is significant, right? Particularly in places that don't have running water, say, in bathrooms. The, the right hand is the hand you eat with. It's the hand you shake hands with. It's the hand you, you do things with. And the, the left hand is for personal sanitation and, and other things that are unclean. And so much so that, that in these cultures, right, um, you, know, you might be rude to point, but if you ever pointed at somebody with your left hand, it's disgraceful. Even within uh, the Christian vocabulary, we talk about giving someone the right hand of fellowship. It's a holdover from you know, social, uh, social habits, social customs. But again, Zacchaeus is a grown man wearing tunics and cloak, and he's going to be climbing up in a tree. I don't know how he can possibly do that. Does he disrobe? Does he, does he, I, I don't know, but this is, this is behavior that's unbecoming. It's undignified. And we ask, why would you do that? And the answer is, the, is that he understood the failure of his life. He understood that his life, his purpose, his, his, the things that he had done were coming to naught. Uh, actually, we, we sang about this this morning, um, right, in, in the, the, the third worship song. It, it, the sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. Zacchaeus is coming to understand that. What he thought was good and right, what had earned him some money, it, it's not right. And so he climbs the tree because he hears that, that Jesus is coming through town. And he just wants to see him. He risks the ridicule. He, 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 he acts in a way that, that's unbecoming simply because he knows that he's in desperate need. He knows that his life is a mess. And so he's looking to the one who saves him. You know, as we think about this in, in church life, we could look through the, the history of the church. There are instances, whether it's ancient or modern, where the church essentially tries to, to communicate, hey, listen, um, we in the church are just like you. Um, you know, so everything's kind of the same. You like to play tennis, we play tennis. You like to play golf, we play golf. You like to play basketball, we play basketball. We talk about Jesus some, but everything else is basically the same. And you understand why. The, the attempt is, is to, to um, make, make the, the, the bar of, of what it means to be part of God's people very low. So it's enticing. But, but what ends up happening here is that the, the culture of the world that we're, we're trying to, to associate with ends up swallowing up the message of the gospel. 
And so pretty soon, you know, come, we're, we're kind of like you, but we talk about Jesus, ends up being come, we're kind of like you, full stop. What Zacchaeus, in his undignified climbing of the tree, reminds us is that the cost of coming to Jesus is going to be our reputation with the wider community. Because we are sinful people, we live in a sinful world. For, for us to claim allegiance to Christ and follow him wherever he might lead means that we're going to have to say no to the world in particular ways. And we need to recognize that that's going to come with a certain ostracization. Ostracization. I apologize, I can't talk. So what does that mean? You know, for churches, it can mean all sorts of things. Um, It it means, you know, short, happy uh, sermons without any mention of life's sticky situations. Small groups that are affirming, where fallen, broken people are never called to uh, examine their own hearts. Worship songs full of a a one note, which is a, a, a triumphalism, that don't bring the scriptures to bear on the whole range of circumstances of life like pain and sorrow and loss and suffering, as well as joy and wonder and awe and and what it means to stand before a holy God. Zacchaeus knew he had a problem, and it was a sin problem. And because he knew he had a problem, and he knew that the only way to find salvation was passing through town that day, He climbs the tree doing whatever's necessary to make sure that he got to see Jesus. But we see that Zacchaeus' climbing of the tree isn't the only remarkable thing that happens here. Right? Jesus is walking by. He sees Zacchaeus. He says, Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm coming to your house tonight. It's kind of odd. We don't typically invite ourselves to, to people's houses, or at least I don't. Again, my mom would have smacked me if I had done that. But, but nonetheless, Jesus does that. And so Zacchaeus gets down, and then uh, the, the people begin to grumble, saying, well, Jesus is going to the house of a sinner. And so he stops, and he says, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give it back four times as much. This gospel that Zacchaeus receives, it's a gospel that comes with repentance. It changes men and women forever. Now, we, we sometimes forget what repentance is or what it looks like. Um, sometimes we, we, we substitute it with a, with a different idea, and that's penance. You know, penance is something you do for absolution. Um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's like if, I, if I've sinned over here, I'll spend time reading the scriptures or praying or doing good deeds over there, and somehow that will work itself out. And, and to be clear, I'm supportive of reading the scriptures and, and spending time in prayer. But if that's our hope, that we're somehow going to balance out the good with the bad, I, can, I will just tell you that there is no hope in that activity. Repentance is something else entirely. It's a, it's a turning away from sin, and it involves at least three things. The first is that we have to acknowledge that what we've done is wrong, and that means stopping the action. 
Second, it involves turning around. And sometimes that means physically turning around. And third, it means proceeding in a new direction. You know, last summer, uh, my family and I went to Knobles. We had a great time. And one of the rides that was of particular fun for us uh, was, was the Dodgems, right? The bumper cars. And, and I have to tell you that the bumper cars at Knobles are heavy. They're old. And so when they hit, they pack a punch. So much so that, that my daughter was in the seat next to me, and we got rear-ended, um, and we got, the, the seat we were on actually shifted and got knocked over. It started to collapse. So we spent the rest of the time sort of driving, uh, trying not to fall, but it was a great time. And as we go around, you know, if you, if you understand bumper cars, right, you all have to go in the same direction, right, so that you avoid the head-on collisions, which are particularly nasty, but the interest in, in repentance actually came after our turn was over. We you know, got out of line. We went in to get in the line of the next ride. But we could still hear what the, the, the person, you know, the next batch of cars. As, as, the, as the attendant said, all right, everybody, get into the cars, buckle up. And, you know, you'd go around and check. And, and then pretty soon we heard a rather exasperated, you're going the wrong way. Please turn around. Well, so at some point after the attendant had repeated that several times, Naomi and I kind of looked and we saw and there was a young man in a car and he was just going the wrong way against the whole flow of traffic. People actually weren't hitting him because it was clear he was not doing what he ought. And, and every time the attendant would speak, he would kind of sheepishly look around and, as if to say, who, me? Now, maybe he didn't know what he was doing. Um, but what ended up happening is that he just kind of kept going straight, the wrong way, straight, the wrong way, until he hit the wall. And then he was stuck. And, and the attendant just kept saying, turn the wheel, press the accelerator, turn the wheel. And, and the guy couldn't do it. He, I don't know why, but he, he couldn't do it. But he spent the whole round of dodgems stuck against the wall, watching all of the other people go around and participate. When we, we don't repent, right, when we don't turn away from sin and go the other direction, that's how we go through life. Now, this repentance, this turning around, that's exactly what Zacchaeus has done. He says that if he, he's going to give half of his possessions to the poor, and if he's defrauded anyone, he's going to give them four times the money back over. If we remember how he earned his money... We recognize that that means every dime he has. So if we take him at his word, he is going to be broke. He will have nothing in this life because he's seeking to follow the Lord Jesus. When we come to Jesus, when we repent and we follow Jesus, not only is it an undignified action often in our time and place but it's also costly repentance costs it's actually it's it's the it's it's the gospel applied to our life and we might ask well why in the world would anyone suffer that and I think for Zacchaeus, as well as for us, the answer is because of the all-surpassing greatness of Christ. That you will follow him wherever he leads without regard to the cost for yourself. 
Now, if we think about this, we also note that salvation comes to Zacchaeus. And in the ordering of things, the the salvation comes right after the repentance. You see it in verses 9 and 10 where Jesus responds by saying, Today salvation has come to this house. And then he goes on to say, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. And that, to, to me, begs the question, Well, is Zacchaeus saved by the repentance or something else? And if he's saved by the repentance, what then does Paul mean when he says that we're saved by grace through faith? And I think what's going on here is that Zacchaeus, the sinner, upon hearing that Jesus is coming and knowing something of the reputation of Jesus as the one who forgives sin, which, let's be honest, only God can do, he seeks out a mere look at this man in the hope that he might be saved. Even in doing that, he is already beginning to express his faith in who this Jesus is. He doesn't know fully. He doesn't know completely. It's just an infant's faith. But it leads him to climb the tree and look upon Jesus. And in demonstrating the the fruit of this infant faith and looking for help, turning to the Lord, you see that he continues to act, to follow Jesus. And he does so in repentance. Now, as I look at this, I'm struck by the oddness of this whole exchange. Because here you see this man up in the tree, this itinerant preacher who's saving people of their sins. And they have a short exchange. And he says salvation is coming. But, But as you listen to it... There's none of the the normal markings, right, that that repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, None of Paul's uh, description of of what it means to move from death to life. And and we might wonder, really, is it enough just to invite yourself over for dinner and express your your love for others through Christian fellowship? Is that enough to to communicate um, the love of God? Is that enough to, to communicate what salvation is? And, and to be clear, we recognize that the, the scriptures do command us to love one another. In the Gospel of John, Jesus tells his disciples that, that the world will know that they're Jesus's if they love one another. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't love others, and I'm not saying that we should act without love toward them. Um, but it also doesn't mean that we should stop speaking. You know, even as we are believers and we, we come together to to spend time with one another, we're we're called to love one another and speak truth to one another. That's why it's so important that we sing songs that that reflect the scriptures, even with a voice like mine. And I'm sorry to Rich, who's sitting and standing next to me this morning, but as I sing, he hears the scriptural truth from my mouth into his ear, and, and it reminds him of who the Lord is. We see what Jesus is saying here just through the whole of the Gospel of Luke. But, but actually, in the verses that follow, we see something of the, the exchange that, that Zacchaeus and Jesus most likely would have had. And in this last parable before the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, Jesus shares um, the parable, it's master and servants, sometimes called the parable of talents, if you're looking at Matthew 25. The telling in Luke is a bit different. 
I don't know uh, exactly why, but I, I have to guess that probably this was a story that Jesus would have told several times. Same central meaning, but, but tailored to, to the certain um, circumstances. It, it runs in 11 through 27. We don't have time to, to read it, but, but it's the one we know, right? Where, where Jesus is, the, is telling the story of, a, of a, a king who leaves, and he's giving money to his servants, some a lot, some a, a little by relative standards. And, and then he goes and he comes back. And when he comes back, the one who, who um, was given a lot had earned a lot of money and presented it to the master, the, the Lord. And the Lord said, well done, good and faithful servant, and gives him control or oversight of much. To the one who's a little but has done well, the Lord gives a little and says, well done, good and faithful servant. But, but in both Matthew and in Luke, the, the last one, the one who got the smallest amount, buried it in the backyard. He did nothing with it. And he said, see, look what I've got. And the master rebukes him. In Matthew, it says that send that one out into the outer darkness. It's, it's a quite bleak, strong language. Uh, send him to the place where there's gnashing of teeth. Luke doesn't record that for us, but he does make uh, explicit the fundamental difficulty of what's going on here. Because it's not a separation between industrious servants and lazy servants. Rather, it is a contrast between those who acknowledge and desire the rule of the king and those who don't. In, in Luke 19, you can see this in, in verses 14 and 27. Follow, follow along as I read them. In verse 14, he, he says, Jesus, Jesus speaking, he says, But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. Continuing down in verse 27, it says, uh, But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. The, the picture here is, is, again, it's not of success and not success. It's a picture of the desire of the Lord's rule and reign. And so then action in obedience to the king, which yields fruit in righteousness, fruit in righteous living. That's the picture that he's giving to Zacchaeus. That's the picture that he's giving to the crowds. It's, again, it's the last parable before, before he enters into Jerusalem. And so what Jesus is, is saying here, and the, the gospel that he's presenting to Zacchaeus is one uh, which it speaks of the giving of gifts and the return of the Lord. And he's calling on Zacchaeus and all of the crowd that is with him to follow him. Not because on the basis of their deeds they will be saved but to follow him with a faith-filled obedience that seeks to follow the Lamb wherever he leads. Now, as I stand here today, you know, again, we've looked at Zacchaeus and we've looked at him as a tax collector and the, 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 the way that he would have functioned in his society. I said at the beginning, and I'll say again now, I don't think we have any tax collectors by trade here. And, and what we need to recognize is that this is a picture of a man who is fallen and far from the Lord, but who is redeemed. 
And so again, I say, you know, if you're here this morning, weighed down by sin, and you, you don't know who Jesus is, as Zacchaeus does, look to him. There's no trees here, and he's not walking down the main street in Soderton today. But nonetheless, by his word, as he's revealed himself, look to the Lord Jesus, the only one who can save. And if you're here having known Jesus, and, and maybe it's by habit, maybe it's, it's by uh, losing of the first love, but, but however it's happened, perhaps you've forgotten what it means to be justified, recognize that this gospel is for all of us today, right now. As we all look to the Lord Jesus, the one who's delivered us from sin and death, we have to remember our justification. Because if we don't, we're lost. If we don't remember that we are justified by the Lord Jesus, we will invariably follow after every doctrine, every scheme, every, every trick of man. It's a bit like a miner, right, looking for precious gold down in the mines and seeing a little bit of shimmer over into the side when we forget our justification, it's, it's kind of like we don't see very well. Or we don't discern very well. And so that as the torch is there, as the flashlights are there, there's a glimmer and we dig it out and we say, look at this gold that I've got. But if we don't recognize that what we have is only valuable because of Jesus, what we discover is that it's not gold. It's pyrite. It's iron with some other bits added in commonly called fool's gold, right? So for each of us, today, look to Jesus. Look to the king who this day, many years ago, entered Jerusalem, entered into Easter week, entered in as the culmination of his ministry, which ended not with his death on Good Friday, but his resurrection on Easter, Look to him who died and who justifies his people, who makes them right before the Lord. It's not because of our actions or our attitudes. It is because of Jesus. So today and tomorrow and in fact every day, don't stop looking to Jesus. Find him as he's revealed himself in his word. And follow him. Don't, don't worry what the world will say. Count the cost. It will be undignified. It will require repentance. But do it for the all-surpassing greatness of Christ, who is coming again, that we might be with him forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. We come to you, and we pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us through your word, that our minds would be shaped, that our hearts would be enlarged, that we would be blown away by the continual love and faithfulness you have displayed for your people. We pray as your people that you would continue to be faithful to us, even as we continue to fall short. 
We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.